Chris O'Connor here. Join the Curmudgeon Rock Report's invite-only curmudgeonly community at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. Also look out for a Spotify playlist that pays honor to this episode. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. In his excellent 2015 biography of The Grateful Dead, So Many Roads, The Life and Times of the Grateful Dead, author and renowned music journalist David Brown makes a very salient point about the difference between a live performance on stage and music recorded in a studio. To liberally paraphrase him, what he says is this, A live show is like an engaging dialogue between two people who are excited by the interaction. A studio recording, on the other hand, is like a carefully crafted, well-organized, well-thought-out speech that you can take home with you and can be just as engaging. This brings us to the Grateful Dead themselves. They were the iconic American band that, for all intents and purposes, basically created the hippie jam band movement, scene, and culture that would bring us the Almond Brothers Band and Little Feet in the 1970s. In the 1990s, the Dead's legacy and model for a fanatical following going on tour with them would give birth to legendary jam band stalwarts Fish, the Dave Matthews Band, and Blues Traveler. And even to this day, neo-jam bands like Garcia Peoples and indie rock darlings Vampire Weekend produce music that echoes the free-form inclusivity and adventurous spirit of Jerry Garcia and his band of hippie misfits. The Grateful Dead's career as a live band lasted almost exactly 30 years from the mid-1960s until Garcia's death in 1995, and the foundation of their reputation is the inspiring improvisational splendor of their marathon live shows. In fact, there are dozens of podcasts right now devoted to live Dead shows, such as the enduring power of Deadhead culture. However, The Curmudgeon Rock Report is here to take a different tack. We want to take a retrospective look at perhaps the most overlooked aspect of the Grateful Dead's music, their visionary studio albums. No, they didn't display the sonic wizardry of the Beatles or Pink Floyd, nor did they ambitiously reframe the parameters of what constitutes rock, such as The Who or David Bowie. What the Dead did, though, is take all their diverse influences and effectively create a new kind of American music, and at times even a new kind of American mythology, that looked to the spacey cosmos just as much as it was grounded to the earth. They were known for their lengthy improvisational jams, but they also wrote short, concise songs of lyrical beauty, melodic wonder, and structural innovation that continue to inspire and influence younger generations of artists who like to delve into American roots music and infuse it with, shall we say, a little psychedelic sparkle and pixie dust. 
This is the first of two episodes examining the Grateful Dead studio output, with this first episode focusing on their early years and the five-album run of classics they released on Warner Brothers from 1967 to 1970. What a long, strange trip it will be. Now, you know, Arturo, uh, you and I could basically sit here and discuss which version of Tennessee Jed from the 1972 European tour that the dead did uh, is better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that is not our lane. Uh, we acknowledge, as you did at the top here, that there are many, many, many uh, podcasts uh, dedicated lovingly to the live uh, work and live shows of the dead. So we're not going to be in that lane. Uh, we are definitely much more comfortable with recorded music on uh, this year podcast, aren't we? Well, we, we can talk about live shows, but the dead have like, what, 5,673 of them. <laughs> so we're not going to do that. We're going to do like the, yeah. the, the six studio albums they did. Uh, oh, actually, the five, the five studio albums they did between 1967 and 1970. Yep. And again, so that that's a more appropriate thing. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll keep it academic and we'll we'll go through uh, all of those albums. Really looking forward to having this conversation with you, because I know that uh, uh, that you have more of a head start on, on deadology than I do. But I, I'd like to think I've caught up over the years. But uh, no, this will be interesting to kind of uh, compare notes uh, with each yeah. other. Uh, you know, that said, uh, any any other uh, new things in your world? Yes. Uh, in my world, well, just to introduce a little bit of my world to everyone else's world, uh, if after this episode and the next episode, which will be part two of this Grateful Dead in the Studio, A Legacy, um, if you're interested, there is a wonderful book by the journalist, music journalist and renowned critic David Brown. Uh, so Many Roads, The Life and Times of the Grateful Dead came out late 2015. It is pretty much the authoritative book on the history and biography of the band. If you're interested in that monolith of a book, go check it out. For sure. Uh, so uh, with that said, we've been uh, ruminating about the real universe, but now, hello, we're now <laughs> in the parallel universe. Uh, the parallel universe is where uh, the bad music is, is definitely still bad, but the great music is actually up there on a pedestal and we get to talk about uh, albums and artists that really should get their props over here but over there are uh, fabulous hits and so uh, this is a segment again the parallel universe that arturo and i every episode uh, we each uh, give a, a brief description of and we engage in a discussion of an album uh, by an artist uh, we think is uh, worthy of your respect and also to let you know, over here in the parallel universe, we also have what we call the parallel vault. So these may not be albums that came out two weeks ago, right? But but they they are of recent vintage, as in of the last decade. And so both of us this week, uh, this is kind of the uh, the damning of faint praise. Twenty twenty two, I've started to call the year of the pretty good. Yeah. Well. We're not going to talk about pretty good. We're actually going to go back a few years and talk about great. And so with that said, who you got, Arturo? Well, and before I get into it, I just want to mention that this is the special suicide edition of the Parallel Vault and the Parallel Universe. Both yes, of it these is. Al 
Both of these albums deal with songs about suicide, and one of them by someone who actually did commit suicide. So yeah, so so yeah, this is this is the cheeriest one we've done in a while for sure. <laughs> anyway, the album I'm talking about, or I will talk about, is the UK, the Manchester UK band Money, and their album from 2016, Suicide Songs. Now. Money released their first album, The Shadow of Heaven, in 2013 to positive critical reviews, but not much commercial success. And it's easy to see why. The band took their cues from the lush, piano-ballad-heavy pop rock of Naughties bands such as Coldplay and Keen and made their songs even longer, sappier, and <laughs> more, more sentimental. Basically, dream pop for people who think the Cocktoo Twins are too heavy. <laughs> however, <laughs> however, something must have happened to the band on the way to making their second album. My guess is that their musical tastes expanded and improved. Hey, sometimes young bands can get better. What resulted in their second album, a quantum leap from their first one, Suicide Songs, released in January 2016, was the sound of Coldplay taking a trip down to Jonestown, as in the swirling 1960s psychedelia of the Brian Jonestown massacre, and meeting Echo and the Bunnymen along the way. The influence of the latter band's classic 1984 album Ocean Rain looms large as the songs on Suicide Songs have an epic grandeur about them, delivered with a, a forcefulness and a confidence that belies the, the, the mushy softness of their debut. You know you're in for something special when the guitar orchestra splendor of the opening track, I Am the Lord, unfolds like a circular flower on acid. Uh, tabla-inspired rhythms, violins, cellos, and multi-tracked guitars, some of them tuned to sound like sitars, swirl together with a beauty that would have made Sgt. Pepper's era George Harrison blush with envy. Uh, the album pulls off the trick of having a uniform, cohesive sound throughout, yet not come across as same-sounding and monotonous due to the variety of instrumental textures and sparkling melodies. Yet nothing prepares the listener for the jaw-dropping centerpiece of the album, All My Life. The song is a tour de force of doomed love, hopelessness, and yearning set to a glorious power riff and a surging, swaying ballad of celestial power that makes lyrics such as, all my life I've been searching for something, so I and always end up, ended up with nothing, makes words like those drive home with clear-headed profundity. Any list of best songs of the decade of the 2010s has to include this song on it. This album takes a strong influence from the, the entire album does, from the Brian Jonestown Massacre. But Anton Newcomb himself has never written a song this moving. And that's saying something, because I'm a huge Jonestown fan. Hmm. Uh, Money have not really, have released literally nothing <laughs> since this album came out. Um, quite a bit about this band is shrouded in mystery. And that's a hard thing to do in today's media-saturated, social media-obsessed era. Sure is. Rumors of inner band strife and turmoil have buzzed around, but they haven't officially broken up. The band's website is still up and 
still up and active. Who knows? Maybe they committed suicide. I don't know. <laughs> then again, the mystery only enhances the beauty, power, and reputation of suicide songs. As with Jeff Mangum and Neutral Milk Hotel, perhaps Jamie Lee and his bandmates realized that they'll never top their achievement on suicide songs. So why bother? <laughs> uh, in any case, go check out Money's Suicide Songs, one of the most breathtakingly beautiful, stirring, startling albums of the past 10 years. And uh, it's worth mentioning that the uh, the best and probably most reliable place to find this record is on YouTube in terms of uh, quick, yeah. uh, quick access. It's not really readily available on the streaming services. Right. Uh, YouTube is where I accessed it to get ready for this episode. Yeah, good, good album. Uh, you pretty much said it right that if you're going to make an album this relentlessly moody and uh stuck in or uh, basically made in the name of yearning yeah it's it's good to change up the instrumentation yeah and you know you know put you know strings here horns over there uh you know uh, keys there uh you you mentioned some of the influences uh on that youtube uh Basically, somebody put the entire album up there. The forty, it's like a forty-six minute record. Put the entire record up there, and uh, somebody in the comments had a great uh, comment. It's as if the Verve and the Antlers had a baby. Uh, I I agree with some of the Verve. I can I can see that, especially early Verve. I don't sure. see the I don't see the Antlers though. I don't hear that. Yeah, little little bit. I mean, in terms of the in terms of the moodiness, in terms of some of um, some of the melodic uh, touches. Uh, I also, you know, generally speaking, I think any sort of modern experiments with reverb yeah. and kind of and kind of spooky sounding like you're in uh, you're singing from outer space probably uh, tips a cap to uh, my morning jacket. And, sure. Uh, yeah. And and in a way, maybe going back Galaxy Five Hundred a little bit. But, right. Uh, right. Yeah. So I wish there had been. The tempos um, are kind of relentlessly mid-range, and there's a melancholy. There's no, there's nothing celebratory, and there's nothing truly uh, crawling ballady here. Yeah, uh, but like you said, it's it's varied enough, and some cl- some good lyrics. I mean, like I said, it's not it's not bullshit lyrics. It's uh, it's pretty much you know from a heartfelt place, and so that's what you want for sure. Yeah, totally. And, and so. Speaking of which, I mean, this gives me a good segue. So, you know, we've said, so this is an album called uh, Suicide Songs. Uh, one of the songs on it is actually called Suicide Song, uh, yeah. singular. And there's a lyric uh, on that that I really, really like uh, where uh, it says, I know some of us need to turn the light into dark. It's remarkable that some of us can't, mm. uh, which which is kind of a what I don't know, kind of a, a pessimistic way of looking at optimism. Yeah. Now, now you take that and you put that against a lyric from the album that I'll be covering, uh, the brilliant uh, uh, Purple Mountains, uh, with their self-titled uh, titled album from 2019. Uh, lyric uh, from a song on that called "Nights That Won't Happen," uh, that goes, "When the dying's finally done and the suffering subsides." All the suffering gets done by the ones we leave behind. And then in the chorus, it goes, nights that won't happen, uh, time we won't spend uh, with each other again, uh, which when you think about it is kind of like a, a really twisted take on imagine. Imagine if I wasn't here anymore. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I use that as a transition because uh, Purple Mountains was the brainchild of David Berman. 
some of you may know that name if you're uh, of uh, similar age and uh, demographic of Arturo and I. Some of you might remember the name David Berman from the late 90s. Uh, he uh, was the, uh, the head of a band called Silver Jews, uh, which uh, first spells uh, featured two of his college friends from the University of Virginia, Stephen Malkness, Malkness and uh, Bob Nastanovich of Pavement. Uh, no, it was not a Pavement uh, side project. Uh, it's, this was a David Berman uh, thing. And so here's a guy who's heavily influenced by alt country and by power pop, but was a poet before he was a musician. He's, you know, I've read some things. Uh, there was an oral history in uh, the University of Virginia's uh, student magazine right after um, Dave, uh, Berman's death uh, that said that he would write the lyrics first and then put music uh, to them. Uh, so I say all of that because Berman had been dormant for a long time and he finally reemerges on July 12th to 2019 with this album uh, under the band name Purple Mountains and self-titled called Purple Mountains. Again, released on July 12th, 2019. Berman committed suicide on August 7th, 2019. Mm. Now, while it would pretty much be unfair and cruel to call the album a suicide note, uh, it certainly was a window into the mind of Berman, who struggled for decades with depression, serious drug addiction, and then more depression. And after all, he did end the record with a jaunty, countrified pop ditty called Maybe I'm the Only One for Me. And the album also features other songs titled All My Happiness is Gone and Darkness and Cold. <laughs> but here's the thing. Uh, this is probably the most beautiful, most hopeful sounding record about living with chronic misery, stress, loneliness, and desperation I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> uh, there's also a wisdom here and at times a sweetness to the lyrics amid all of the heartache in Berman's life that I really find fascinating. Uh, this isn't a blatant, a truly blatant exercise in bleakness. I mean, take this amusing couplet from the opening song. That's the way I feel. Uh, it says, when I try to drown my thoughts in gin, I find my worst ideas know how to swim. <laughs> which is which is pretty which is a pretty good deadpan uh, uh, self deprecating line, uh, and so it kind of it's it's a really tight song cycle that kind of goes on like this, you know, very uh, you know lovely melodies. Uh, obvious in inspiration uh, comes from uh, the alt country uh, bands such as Wilco and the Jayhawks, and from Beck Hansen. Uh, you know, uh, Berman was one of these guys who was a great non singer singer. Mm. Uh, you know, in that he could capture melodies in a very kind of ick uh, type of voice. Anyway, uh, one other song to talk about a little bit uh, before I kick it back over to you, Art. Uh, she, there's another song on here that strikes a little too much of a mental uh, chord uh, with me. And it's called uh, She's Making Friends, I'm Getting Stranger. <laughs> uh, now, at the time of his death, uh, you know, Berman was in bad shape. His mom had just died and his he was deeply, deeply, deeply in debt, but also he had gotten so depressed and had gotten so hard to live with that his wife, while she stayed his best friend, uh, they were separated because evidently Berman, he just became a guy that she couldn't live with. And so this is kind of a, of a, a, a lampoon on that, this idea of, right. 
of here I am in this relationship. And so it's got this other line. In. And again, you know, this guy's an amazing lyricist. Uh, it's got a line in there. It says, I see lots of normal men yearning to obtain her. I'm a loser. She's a gainer. That's one thing of which they're dang sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's, it, again, it's very deadpan. It's very self-deprecating, but very funny, uh, but also very poignant. Uh, and so Berman just had a real gift uh, as, as a lyricist and as a non-singer singer and just really engaging. And so it's really a damn shame that he killed himself so close after this, because that's what it'll be remembered for, as opposed to, you know, the, the, the raw honesty and, and the sort of the poetics of misery. Uh, Mm. It it won't stand as an artistic statement. It'll stand as a record that came out before its maker uh, uh, hung himself. So yeah, that's a shame. Yeah, I mean, this is a like you said. It, uh, I, there's never been such happy, joyful music set to sadder, more depressing lyrics. You'd have to really go back to some of those long lost albums of the 1960s and 70s to find something of that ilk. I was never really a big fan of David Berman and his Silver Jew stuff. I respected him, but I never was a, really a fan. I found his voice a little too deadpan. Yeah. His li- his earlier lyrics uh, to be a little too precious. Uh, yeah. This album, this album is definitely a cut above uh, musically and lyrically from anything that he's really, I think, uh, done before. There's a part of me that would have said, "Well, the lyrics are a little too overwrought and uh, a little too maudlin in, in its depression." But the guy died one month after this album was released, so I can't really say that. <laughs> yeah, hey, at least he was being honest. As we mentioned a few minutes ago, the Rock and Roll podcast space is replete with shows dedicated to the majesty of the Grateful Dead, created with the kind of dedication and granularity that we only kinda sorta approach here. Kinda sorta, of course, is pretty generous, but you know, work with us. It's pretty cool to dig around for what's out there to learn all about the amazing mythology and history of the band, and especially about the miles and miles and miles of live show tapes for old heads and newbies to explore alike. We just wanted to take a moment here to give a shout out to some of the best of these Grateful Dead oriented podcasts. The Dead Pod, Dead and Gone, Working Man's Pod, No Simple Road, Code Names, Dead Show of the Month, Help on the Way, and we certainly must not leave out the official Grateful Dead podcast, Good Old Grateful Deadcast. It is an honor to be part of this wider rock and roll podcast community. Everyone in it teaches us just so much, and these podcasts that dissect and deify the Grateful Dead are among the best of the bunch. Check them out where you check out all of the other podcasts. Now, here is one thing about the Grateful Dead before we start talking about these first five records that they did and released between 1967 and 70. Uh, Like a lot of other famous uh, rock bands uh, that emerged in the uh, early, uh, mid-60s, they, uh, the Dead meaning, uh, they had their origins in Skiffle and as a Skiffle band. Now, Skiffle uh, is a uniquely American art form. It's basically, it's a smorgasbord of Americana, uh, take jazz and bluegrass and blues and Appalachia and do all of this and then make a jamboree out of it with makeshift acoustic instruments, uh, washboard, uh, T chest, uh, bass. 
and uh, just all kinds of other uh, strange, you know, uh, strange instrumentation. Uh, and it's just, just a f- exotic, fun, experimental uh, c- concoction and uh, really a lot. And it lends itself to acoustic guitar uh, type sounds. So the Dead started off as a skiffle band. The Beatles started off as a skiffle, skiffle band and uh, several other uh, well-known, the Animals uh, being one of them, they started off as skiffle bands. But here's the thing. Those other bands all eventually morphed into very orthodox boogie-woogie rock and roll bands. The Dead, I would maintain, were the skiffleist of all of these uh, these skiffle band, you know, skiffle-origined famous rock bands in the sense I don't think they ever lost that spirit of joy and of weird and of, of twisting and bending and seeing what else we could, uh, it, we, we could add uh, to the mix. And so uh, with that said... Uh, this is where we start to see them learn to capture that spirit and all, and that mix and that brew here, uh, starting from the beginning. With that said, Arturo, uh, tell us a little bit about how the dead became the dead. A very brief description because this, sure. is, this is a novel in of itself. But anyway, yes. um, the, me- the original core members of the dead, uh, Jerry Garcia, guitar, Phil Lesh, bass, Ron Mc- Pigpen McKernan, keyboards, Bill Kreutzmann, drums, Bob Weir, rhythm guitar. They all came together in Palo Alto, California, which for those of you who don't know, it's near Stanford University, up, up way up in Northern California. And in spe- specifically, it was the Palo Alto folk scene, the coffeehouse folk scene where these guys all gathered. But here's the thing, and this is the really important aspect to realize. None of these guys, none of these five people had a rock and roll background. They all had backgrounds in different styles and genres of music. With Garcia, who hailed from San Francisco, his background was purely folk. Folk, country, and if blues, acoustic country blues. That, and, of course, bluegrass. That was Garcia's background. Um, Phil Lesh was a classically trained musician. Um, he was also from the Northern California area. I believe he went to a high school that was a uh, that had a specialized music program that taught students how to read, write music, and how to compose. And Phil Lesh was part of that. Until he joined the members that would become the Grateful Dead, he was purely a classical music buff. Ron McKernan, Pigpen, known to all his friends back then, his background was strictly blues, 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 and maybe R and R and B. Back then, it was rhythm and blues. His father actually was a pretty well-known R&B DJ back in the day. Bill Kreutzmann, the drummer, was a teenaged jazz prodigy as a, as a drummer. His background was jazz, and that's what he wanted to be. He wanted to be a jazz drummer. And then Bob Weir, Weir was basically a, uh, he was adopted by a military family and was pretty much a spacey bohemian <laughs> as a teen who was a, he's kind of a spacey old man now but he was a spacey teenager back then and uh, his musical background is whatever man <laughs> and anyway um yeah. they got together they got together in Palo Alto and they all knew each other in the folk scene as part of the folk scene and they hung out there um the notion of rock and roll didn't really come to them uh, and didn't, if they knew about it, I'm sure they all knew about it, but they weren't really into it until something happened in early 1964 
when the Beatles exploded on television, later in movie theaters, on, on all over pop culture, all over the radio, and countless musicians who were playing different kinds of music said, shit, let's start a rock and roll band. <laughs> and that's what happened with the members of the dead. Now, I, I really went into their musical backgrounds, being disparate, folk here, classical here, blues here, jazz there. All of that is really important to note because the Grateful Dead, the members, the, the guys who became the dead, came around to rock and roll really late in their lives. Uh, for some of them, it wasn't until the Beatles that they became interested in rock music. So unlike a lot of their peers of, of their generation, other uh, uh, you know, 1960s white rock bands, most of them grew up as teenagers in the 1950s loving rock and roll. The Beatles, as you mentioned earlier, Chris, are one of them. Um, a lot of the other Bay Area bands, they were all lovers of 1950s rock and roll, Elvis and Chuck Berry and all that mm -hmm. stuff. The members of the dead were not like that. They were not into that, that first wave of rock and roll. They came into that much, 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 much later. And yep. because of that, because of those different unique musical backgrounds and separate musical backgrounds, because they came into rock and roll late, that is why the dead took a very different approach to rock music from all the other bands in the Bay Area. It's what gave them such, eventually gave them such a powerful, innovative and original sound because they came at rock and roll from a different angle. Sure. They, weren't, they weren't purists like Janis Joplin, you know what I mean? Yeah, so, exactly. You know, and, you know, yeah, just to offer a thought on that. I think that the thrill of the weird, yeah, uh, that's kind of where it comes from because it's like, oh, well, that's different. Or or how can we combine these things and all that? Because they have that sensibility and they're just sort of the, they were sort of learned. They were learners of music. They were they were sponges. Right. And, so, and like you get five sponges in the same room. That's a whole lot of absorption. And so uh, I know that Lesh in uh, some interviews and even Bob Weir uh, said that they kind of took pride in being weird. And yeah. taking those chances and and, and throwing throwing curveballs for the sake of the beauty of the curveball, right. So, right? so that that was a well that was a, a good way of setting that up. So, yeah. um, so so anyway, the Dead. Uh, well, the members of the Dead. Let's be a rock band. Well, late 1964, early 1965. That's what they did. They formed a ramshackle garage band called the Warlocks. And what separated the Warlocks from all of the other garage rock bands that were around at the time is that, like you said, Chris, they had that sense of adventurousness and the Warlocks insisted on improvising songs in pizza parlors and in two bit bars around town. That's how they really kind of cut their teeth. Uh, the pizza parlor is where they met Phil Lesh. Phil Lesh was like one of the last people to join the band. The original bass player Garcia thought wasn't good enough and couldn't hack it. Um, Phil Lesh came in who had never played bass, uh, bass guitar before, but he had that classical music background. So he was able to pick up the bass uh, in due time. And anyway, that's when you get the Warlocks and they were bumming around through 1965. Uh, enter LSD. <laughs> yes. Uh, they start taking that drug quite a bit. They change their name to the Grateful Dead. And in late 65, uh, all the way through 66, 
they start playing uh, as the house band in Ken Kesey's acid test events. Um, this is these are basically house parties where people will show up, uh, trip off their balls and their asses on LSD, and there would be a multimedia show all around them: lights, strobe lights, uh, film projectors showing old films that. Ken Kesey's group themselves filmed on a road trip back in 1963. And the Grateful Dead, of course, they themselves, high off their asses, would be improvising music to these uh, um, to these film projection, these film projections and these strobe lights and these colored lights. Very much at the exact same time, the Velvet Underground and the Andy Warhol scene were doing a very similar thing in New York. Uh, in in 1966, sure. and these two, and these two bands never crossed paths. So that's interesting how uh, how things happen to two 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 opposite coasts of the country, two bands, two artists doing very similar things. Just then, and they don't know about it. they don't know of each other at all. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, the, uh, the, the Grateful Dead got their notoriety, and I probably stressed the word notoriety <laughs> from these <laughs> from these acid test shows. And eventually they started playing around town and eventually they moved to San Francisco later in 66 and they became part of the burgeoning San Francisco music scene that also included Quicksilver Messenger Service, Big Brother and the Holding Company, which will eventually include Janis Joplin and Moby Grape. Um, So a lot of those artists and bands started getting signed because the buzz around the Bay Area was really becoming a serious thing. So hoping to tap into the San Francisco scene's burgeoning buzz and to beef up their rock band roster, A&R decided to sign the Grateful Dead. And this decision came by the legendary A&R, uh, oh, sorry, not a Warner Brothers, my mistake. Warner Brothers signed the dead. Joe Smith was the legendary A&R manager uh, working for Warner Brothers at the, sign, at the time who signed the dead directly to Warner Brothers, and boy, did he not know what he was getting into. No, he did not. Uh, <laughs> and you know, and uh, for anybody out there who wants, uh, if you want to dedicate four hours of your time, we strongly recommend, it was a, I think Amazon uh, uh, produced it, but it was a four-hour documentary called A Long Strange Trip uh, on the dead that was, came out, what, about 10 years ago now at this point? No, 10, like more like six co-produced by co-produced by Martin Scorsese, who by the way is in the, is in the, in in the middle of produce directing. If he hasn't finished already a biopic about the life of Jerry Garcia. Yeah. Uh, starring, uh, what's his face there? Uh, Jonah Hill. Yes. Of all people is Jerry Garcia. That ought to be interesting. So, so that really kind of sets us up. Uh, they get signed uh, by Warner Brothers. And, uh, and so now they've got backing. There's a little bit of buzz because of their status as the house band for Ken Kesey. And so, yeah, uh, I guess we need to make a record. <laughs> and they did. And The Grateful Dead's first album is just self-titled. The Grateful Dead came out in 1967. The Dead's debut album from the year of the Summer of Love, which we all know is 1967, is quite possibly the most undead-like album in their entire discography. Easily. There, there are a couple of reasons for that. First, it's their most raw, garage-rocky, straightforward album. When they went into the studio in January and cranked it out in just one month, 
everything, basic tracks, overdubbing, mixing, one month. They were fewer than two years removed from their origins as the Warlocks. So the album has this kinetic, speedy, live band in the studio energy. And it makes sense. They had never entered a studio before. So trying to replicate their live show at the time was an understandably uh, default attitude. Second, second reason why it was so different from all the other Dead albums, because it was their first time in the studio and they were on a tight budget being a new band, they didn't have time to mess around with experimentation or indulgence. Yes, Jerry Garcia's guitar, uh, man, he plays solos all over this record, especially on the epic raver of Walla Lee Blues, but they're controlled, almost practiced solos. This is all anathema to what the dead eventually stood to represent. But all of this actually enhances the debut album. Aside from the garage rock energy, there's a sparkling, pristine, clear, straight-to-the-gut sound captured on this record that the band rarely returned to in ensuing years. I mentioned how the band members' disparate musical backgrounds led to them having the most unique and innovative sound of the San Francisco bands. On this record, it's that sound, but sped up within a very endearing restlessness bordering on aggression. I think this is a really, really underrated album in their discography. Yeah, I, I think it's good. Uh, I've never been, I'm not, I won't, I'm not a huge fan of the record, but I will say it's good. It's really kind of a fascinating listen in the sense of when you listen to side one, uh, yes, it's very garagey and it's very uh, bluesy and uh, Pigpen is real. Ron McKernan is really the star of this record. I mean, the organ uh, pretty much is, uh, is a dominant feature of a lot of these songs. I mean, I, I always love cold rain and snow, which sounds like it comes out of a late fifties sock hop. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, which is just the very sort of uh, bouncy uh, type of song. And so it's, you're like, wait a second, this is the, the dead. You know, it's got this sort of, you know, echoey uh, sheen yeah. to it. It's uh, like you said, you know, you've got, you know, sort of uh, bluesy and uh, poppy and garagey and all of this kind of stuff. It's like, where's this coming from? And then you get the side two and yeah. all of a sudden it's like the dead is becoming the dead in yeah. real time. And you get the side two and then you've got a streak uh, there. Uh, which is uh, Morning Dew, uh, New New Morningwood Blues, and Viola Lee Blues. And voila, voila, voila Lee. Voila Lee Blues. Yeah, as in the French, voila. Yeah, and uh, then all of a sudden, now, now they're the the they're actually the dead with uh, these sort of uh, real uh, uh, pathos and you know Garcia starts to flex his guitar muscles, uh, both as a, uh, a creator of clean, uh, lovely uh, lead lines in ballads, and also as obviously a kick-ass soloist uh, who, you know, took his, uh, his bluegrass and, uh, you know, sort of country uh, and folk uh, training and, and translating it to, uh, you know, chugging electric guitar. Uh, Morning Dew is an interesting uh, case because, uh, that is a cover of a 1962 folk song uh, yeah. by a lady named Bonnie Dobson. Yep. And it's a narrative that uh, describes a couple uh, having a dialogue after they've just survived a nuclear holocaust. Yeah. Um, 
And so in Bonnie Dobson's hands, uh, there, there's a 1969 recording of it by Dobson. And you can find it out there on the streaming services. Really schmaltzy. Uh, right. I mean, it sounds like it could be from a party scene in uh, Midnight Cowboy, or it could yeah. be from, you know, like a, I don't know, uh, some of the, the more melodramatic stuff that was coming out in the late 60s. Yeah. Uh, and so in her hands, it's, it, it, I guess in some ways it's more sly in the sense that it's not quite as obvious that it's this, you know, post-Holocaust drama. Yeah, yeah. And Garcia gets it and he Americana eyes it up and really plays up the drama. And it's just got this lovely sparseness to it. Yeah. I mean, like, like all great covers, Garcia and the dead really make this song their own. Sure. And they do it because Garcia in particular sings the song with a pained conviction and sympathy that kind of belies his reputation as an average singer on mm-hmm. this song, his voice is sonorous. It's deep. It's powerful. And of course there's that heavenly guitar that glides throughout the song. Oh yeah. Through, through and around uh, Bill Kreutzmann's Marshall drum beat. Garcia's, oh, yeah. Garcia's voice and guitar always were featured parts of the dead's patented sound. But at this early stage in the band's career, Garcia really carried and pushed things forward. And this song, in particular, of all the songs in the debut album, it's this song that became a staple of their live repertoire for many years afterward. Oh, yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. Uh, worth mentioning, by the way, one of the reasons that I'm not a, a huge fan of this record, uh, it's a nine-song album, seven covers. Uh, so, yeah. So there's yeah. one song, uh, the album opener, that... Uh, was written it has a co like a collective band uh, uh, writing credit and then there's another one song but written by garcia they're the two worst songs on the record uh you know and so but it also showed and so that maybe i'm saying i'm lamenting that they hadn't figured out how to really write songs at that point but at the same time uh in concert they are one of the greatest coverers Mm. and interpreters of other people's music of all time. I mean, just, right. you know, like the version of Good Lovin' that, you know, predominated yeah. their, their sets uh, through the 70s, uh, sure. is, you know, is, is an example. So yeah. I, I, I mentioned, uh, we mentioned, vo- you mentioned Voila Lee Blues. To me, that's one of the other standouts at this, yeah. in this record. At the, ten, at the 10 minute mark, it's by far the longest track on the album and arguably its centerpiece. It was definitely one of the highlights of the band's live act at the time. And you can hear why, you know, starting a, as a tight as fuck, mid-tempo blues rock chugler, very simple, kind of like a proto CCR kind of track. Yeah. Uh, it, it picks up speed and transforms into like this hyperspeed freak out. And Garcia's stinging, needly guitar lines lead the way as the song crashes back into its motif riff and tempo uh another thing about this track they performed at, at the, the monterey pop festival in summer of 1967 and uh they were filmed but the band did not want to be included in the film they, right. they, they, were, they were filmed for they were filmed for the film but they did not want to be included in the movie they adamantly refused to uh, to be so and the, tr- the 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 track that the director i think that was the penny uh, d.a penny baker i think yes wanted to put in it was their performance of Walla Lee Blues. <laughs> and yeah. that was what the dead said. Nope. 
Yeah, the best song on our debut album played for 15 minutes in an awesome jam. No, we don't want it. In, we don't want it in the movie. It's going to define Flower Power forever. No. Well, yeah, but at the same, well, maybe it was uh, reverence because the guy they were covering there was an old uh, jug band bluesman from the early 20th century. I think he's from Louisiana, named Noah Lewis. Yeah. And so maybe it was reverence for uh, sort of the origins uh, of that, but also it kind of speaks to. Uh, that you know the the dead were not pretentious by any stretch, but they were very guarded about how their music, and you know basically in terms of how they they, even though they loved the kind of the weird independent spirit, nobody was in control of the dead's destiny. Uh, yeah. Other other than the dead. Right. So, so it kind of it kind of speaks to that ethos. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, well, Chris, you are so-so on the self-titled debut. I think it is a shining, beautiful, underrated nugget in their discography, partially because they've never done anything like it ever since. Right. However, their next album, oh boy. <laughs> now, now, now we go into something different here. Uh, while the self-titled debut album was recorded as quickly as possible, with as few hassles as possible. The making of Anthem of the Sun, their second album from 1968, was the 180-degree opposite. The previous album took one month to take, whereas this album took six months, utilizing four different studios. Mm -hmm. uh, drug use was rampant throughout the sessions for the album, weed, acid, and nitrous oxide being the featured items on the menu. And it seemed as if the band were really trying to capture the psychedelic experience on record. And that they did, and then some. Uh, listening to Anthem of the Sun for the first time is a jarring, dizzying, disorienting experience. Studio recordings and recordings of their live shows are combined, weaving in and out, often within the same song. But after repeated listens... The album actually emerges as the most rewarding acquired taste record in the Dead's discography. Mickey Hart had joined the band at this point as their second drummer, and the combination of him and Bill Kreutzmann not only added power and muscle to their sound, but also a subtle world music-inspired touch that acted as a counterpoint to Kreutzmann's jazzy style. At this point, the band was improving by leaps and bounds as a live band. In fact, this was the period when they were establishing the densely layered improvisational sound they became legendary for. And it was especially evident with Phil Lesh's thick, loud, limber, snaky bass lines that acted more like a lead guitar than a bass. Their conventional songwriting skills were still evolving, more on that with their next album, but this is the studio album, or quasi-studio album, that best represents the Grateful Dead's thundering epic live sound at the time. Many albums of this period have been claimed to be, uh, to be psychedelic classics, but Anthem of the Sun is a rarity even among that crowd. It's an album conceived by musicians on drugs, recorded while they were on drugs that still manages to reveal layers of beauty and sonic innovation with each listen. Yeah. Uh, I, I with you on that. Uh, yeah, this, this record, uh, you know, you can't really look at an album like this uh, as like a traditional album. It's, it's not about the songs. 
Uh, and it's, it's more about a, about a mood. It's, you can look at it as psychedelic rock as an academic exploration. And, uh, I, I've made this and I talked about this record, uh, way back when at the, in the early days uh, of, uh, this podcast, uh, I talked a little bit about it on our, uh, one of our vaults, uh, segments, this album is, you can compare it to a shattered stained glass window. Yeah. And the, the pieces are a hell of a lot more interesting than the whole pile of, of like glass. You know, it's like, it just, when you look at it, so you have, you know, this shard here and this shard there. Uh, I don't know if anything on this really counts as a song. Hmm. Uh, I, I think the closest thing to it is new potato caboose. Yeah. Bill Lesh. And I, I say that because at least the, the long solo jam follows from uh, Lesh's uh a pretty melodic structure. You know, yeah. it's, not, it's not kind of a, a, a random uh, segue uh, there, but, uh, and so, you know, to me, you know, there's, you, you can take, uh, there's the the double drum transition on album opener. That's it for the other one, which is essentially, like you said, how Mickey Hart introduces himself uh, to the mix. There's the kazoos of uh, Alligator, uh, which is you know, about the most skiffle touch that you would, you'll find in a, uh, on a dead record. And then, you know, then, like you said, they, they go in and out of studio and, and, uh, the live uh, stuff. The end of the record is extraordinary. Uh, the, the last track, which is just basically like a big old jam and spliced together. I don't even think it's one jam, uh, called caution. Do not stop on tracks. Yeah. Uh, that gets fascinating because it just turns into this blanket of noise feedback art. Uh, so, it's pretty neat. Uh, Alligator, I've always been a fan of. Uh, there's a couple of things about uh, that one. Uh, one, it's the first time that Robert Hunter, who we'll talk a lot about uh, in subsequent uh, 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 albums throughout this series of uh, you know looking at these albums, Robert Hunter makes his first appearance, uh, you know, co-writing the lyrics of Alligator uh, with Pigpen, uh, and that song really kind of evokes uh, Lewis Carroll. And some of the stuff that author Shel Silverstein was doing at the time. Silverstein's most famous in rock and roll, anyway, for uh, writing the lyrics to a boy called uh, "A Boy Named Sue" by uh, by Johnny Cash. And right. So, yeah, like you said, it's a great capturing of the spirit of the times, of the so sort of the druggy, uh, you know, you know, let's take a trip into the deepest retresses of our minds to see what slop we can dig up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And. Uh, it, it's you, you're talking about the making of this record harkens back to the documentary. There's a wonderful sequence in that where uh, they're talking to Joe Smith, the A&R man about how much of a headache that was, because I guess at one point, Bob Weary tells the story, you know, Weir was, you know, he was like tripping balls, like, you know, extra strength. <laughs> and he wanted to push for them to uh, have a, like a mobile recording unit to go out to the beach so that they could re- record the colors of the wind, or the, uh, or you know the uh, you know the the sing. What it was, what it was, I would record the sound of the air. There we go. There we go. <laughs> it was it was the sound of the air, uh, and <laughs> and this is kind of wild thing. And Joe Smith is like, "What? No, well, please save me from this bullshit." You know, it's just, <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, poor yeah. guy. You know. Yeah. yeah. However, for all our younger fans out there who really do not want to sit through an entire sitting of Anthem of the Sun, we'll recommend some choice 
tracks, quote unquote songs yeah. <laughs> that you can probably find on Spotify. I recommend that's it for the other one, yes. which was a staple of dead shows for years after Anthem of the Sun came out. And it marks the beginning of one of the greatest facets and aspects of the band's music, prog rock dead. Uh, yep. A multi-section suite of tracks that goes through a number of time signature changes, melodic shifts, and guitar and multiple guitar passages. Again, prog rock dead. And of course, Chris, you mentioned Alligator, which is a bluesy shuffle and a platform for a keyboardist uh, Ron Pigpen McKernan to showcase his soulful blues man voice, but ends up being dominated by the drumming duel between Kreutzmann and Hart and of course, Garcia's blistering guitar solo. Yeah, un- unbelievable soloing uh, on that. Uh, the thing about that's it for the other one. Uh, I think that that's an important one to mention because that's the first time we get the patented, what I'll call the patented Grateful Dead groove. Yeah. You know, there, there is a distinct uh, groove where it's kind of this uh, kind of breezy, gentle sway of a groove that uh, Garcia manages to, he fills in the spaces with his lead work. And, yeah, you know, and and it's just it's a it's a nice sort of sonic pastiche. Yeah, and it's the kind of it's a patented groove that they would come to, to over and over and over and over again over the course of the next twenty years. Right, absolutely. And next, the next album after after the excesses and the indulgence, but the odd brilliance of Anthem of the Sun comes the album where I think the Dead really had their turning point. Yes. And that is Aoxo Moxoa from 1969, spelled A-O-X-O-M-O-X-O-A, for those of you who want to know. <laughs> In 1968, the Dead and their whole operation moved from San Francisco and into the rural surroundings of nearby Marin County. Different members moved into ranches, and the bucolic scenery immediately made an impact on the band's sound. Aoxomoksoa marked a transition from the full-blown acid rock of Anthem of the Sun to a slightly psychedelic, psychedelia-inflected brand of rock encapsulating jazz, country, and folk music. People like to point to the following Working Man's Dead album as the, the band's movement to roots music, but it really started with Aoxo Moxoa. Uh, like the previous album, Aoxo Moxoa took six months to make, but this time drug use and dysfunctional behavior were not the reasons. They had done recordings using the studio's usual eight-track recorder, but in early 1969, the, the studio brought in a brand new 16-track machine. The band decided to ditch their old recordings and start from scratch while getting accustomed to the new 16-track recorder. Of course, this didn't do anything to alleviate tensions with Warner Brothers <laughs> as, the pro- as the process put them further into debt with the record company. Yeah. The, to- the total cost ended up being $180,000, which doesn't sound bad until you consider that after adjusting for 2022 rates, that amounts to about $1,300,000. Yep. <laughs> yes, Joe Smith was pissed off. Yep. Uh, yet, as far as long-term artistic success and posterity go, the money was more than worth it. Aoxo Maxoa is another near masterpiece from a band that was artistically and creatively firing on all cylinders. More specifically, the album marks the true beginning 
of the Robert Hunter, Jerry Garcia songwriting partnership. This whole album, every single song is Hunter Garcia, uh, as opposed to just a little bit of Hunter on the previous album. And that partnership, Hunter's lyrics, Garcia's music, would creatively define the band from here on out. Hunter was a folk musician pal of Garcia's from back in the Palo Alto coffee shop days. They became reacquainted in 68, and Hunter immediately started penning lyrics to Garcia's increasingly sophisticated music. Hunter's lyrics were imaginative and evocative, creating a psychedelicized parallel universe version of the American Wild West, where gamblers, outlaws, and all kinds of colorful, colorful characters go through their own existential crises. Considering the move or, or uh, the, the, the move rootsy or the rootsy moves and the Americana textures in their music, the Hunter collaboration was apt. Uh, Aoxo Moxoa perfectly captures a moment in time when the Grateful Dead had their feet on solid, earthy ground while keeping their eyes to the cosmos. Yeah, this this album is uh, very, very, very strong. Now, I can just imagine, it's kind of amazing when you think about it that that debut record was out only two years yeah. before this. Now, you look at the Grateful Dead. You know, I said, that first record, it's a good record, but it's it's a garage it's a garagey type record that was not anything that was extraordinarily uh, distinct from any of the other bands in that San Francisco scene. Basically, yeah. two years later, they have gone like into the cosmos like a thousand times, uh, <laughs> you know, more sophisticated. So I can just imagine, even if I had caught on to the Dead and like, yeah, 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 okay, the Dead, they're Ken Casey's house band, you know, they do all this crazy shit. And then you first hear St. Stephen, which starts that record. Right. And that must have been like, whoa, uh, at the time. And so I guess it, th- this is a record you, you mentioned this sort of this is their first real uh, dabbling into Americana, which is extraordinary to me because it played the record. Uh, it plays like a psychedelic magic carpet ride. Yeah. Back, back into old timey days rather than into any technicolor utopian future that you would right. kind of associate. You know, the acid kicks you to unknown reasons. No. Wait, 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 wait. It goes back to the ragtimey old, the old days and infuses the past with psychedelia. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. You know, like even uh, like some of the, like doing, you know, doing that rag obviously is the most, uh, yeah. Yeah. is the most glaring example of that. And then Dupree's Diamond Blues, which is just basically a very, uh, very sort of, you know, early century sort of countryish folk, uh, you know, this sort of, you know, the ballad of Dupree, basically, you know, uh, yeah. and it has that. And then you get other uh, flavors on that. I mean, I love Cosmic Charlie, uh, yeah. which, you know, which, you know, just has this like, like wonderful. Again, it's kind of like that. Uh, it's got that dead sway in it, but it's a more layered and textured uh, uh, version uh, of it. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> few other things. That, oh, yeah. go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I want to, uh, other uh, track recommendations for all you younger Spotify lovers out there. The weird shifty rhythms and jazzy flourishes of the timeless classic that you mentioned, Chris, St. Stephen, signal the increasing complexity of the dead's music while remaining listenable, accessible, and downright catchy. One of the other enduring masterpiece tracks on this album, and there are many, you mentioned a few of them already, one, uh, another one is China Cat Sunflower with its endearing earworm guitar riff 
Few Grateful Dead tracks endured throughout the decades like this one, always a highlight of any of their live shows. Yeah, which is a weird thing because if you look at, you know, if you spend the time looking at their sets uh, during their their heyday, uh, China Cat Sunflower is like the only one of these songs that endured as far as, you know. St. Stephen did a bit. Yeah, St. Stephen was in and out, but China Cat Sunflower is the one that never dropped off or never became obscure. And uh, so a couple of the th- this probably has my favorite Robert Hunter lyric on it from St. Mm-hmm. Stephen. Uh, can you answer? Yes, I can. But what would be the answer to the answer, man? Uh, <laughs> that, that, that's, that's very hippy dippy uh, 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 psychology or philosophy uh, right there. And then the only complaint I have about this, and maybe it's because I've never listened to this album fucked up on, on weed or, or psychedelics. It, what what in the world is with what's become of the baby? Uh, yeah, that, that, that's the one track. That's the one track even Deadheads don't like. Yeah, that that just gets grating. And for folks that haven't heard this record, now we strongly recommend that you do hear this record. Uh, we'll be uh, assembling a, a Spotify playlist that'll essentially just have all five of these records in the same playlist, and you can listen to them, you know, in uh, track order. This is eight minutes of, uh, I guess you could call it a spoken word uh, poem. You know, written, you know, it's you know, written by Hunter and recited by Garcia, but recited by Garcia. And I'm assuming because it was a 16 track recording, like all 16 tracks, uh, you know, where he sounds like he's, uh, you know, kind of singing this up to the heavens from another dimension. And (laughs) it's like, it's like the worst kind of science fiction-y kind of shit imaginable. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. And the lyrics are not even all that profound. And so that is the one misstep on an otherwise amazing record. Yes, it is their true, in my opinion, it's their first masterpiece record. People check it. Yeah, check out the individual tracks on Spotify if you want. But check out the album, Aoksomoksoa. But then came the true masterpiece streak. And we're going to start this off with Working Man's Dead from 1970. It's been said that the Grateful Dead's desire to make simpler American roots music was the impetus behind their on-record transition as the new decade started. The truth was the reason was practical and financial as well. After spending a fortune on both Anthem of the Sun and Aoksomoksoa and seeing only modest record sales in return, the band encouraged by their new road manager, Sam Cutler, saw the need to be more fiscally responsible and make records as cheaply as possible. Therefore, back to the bare-knuckle approach of their first album. Now, other reasons existed for the expedited recording. Early in 1970, the band was busted for marijuana and LSD possession at a hotel in New Orleans, putting the band's future in doubt. The charges were eventually dropped when the band's lawyer made a, shall we say, healthy donation to the district attorney's election campaign. <laughs> but, but at the time, it was a dark cloud over the band. An even darker cloud emerged when the band's manager at the time, Lenny Hart, drummer Mickey Hart's father, had embezzled thousands of dollars of the band's money and eventually fled with even more of their money. Conversely enough, it was perhaps all this negativity that led to the tender, almost defiantly light roots music-based mood 
of Working Man's Dead. As I mentioned earlier, the dead were already treading, uh, trending toward blues, country, folk territory with Alexo Moksoa. But they went full bore with this one. What's striking about the album is simply the high quality and sophistication of the songcraft as the Garcia-Hunter collaboration reaches its peak. Songcraft had never been something associated with the Grateful Dead. After Working Man's Dead, it would be just as important to the band's legacy as their epic live shows. Uh, many of the songs had already been tested, road tested, uh, shall we say, for almost a year before they went into the studio. But they took even more time to rehearse the material before entering the studio, primarily to per perfect their vocal harmonies. For songs as delicate and precise as these, they require almost pitch-perfect vocal performances, and the dead brought their A-game uh, in regards to the vocal department. The Garcia-Lesh-Weir trio of voices never sounded better and more seamless than they did on this album. And for what it's worth, recorded in just one month in February 1970 and chock full of accessible and catchy songs for the radio, guess what? It was the first Grateful Dead album that gave the honchos at Warner Brothers something to be happy about. Why? It went as high as number 27 on the Billboard album chart. That's big for the dead back yep. then and for a lot of these bands of that ilk. <laughs> yeah, that's when they started to make some of that uh, uh, today's dollar, million dollars back uh, yeah. you know, at, at that point. Yeah, this is uh, a really kind of um, amazing. You know, as these albums go, you see the sophistication going. But then you see these, they kind of, uh, they're almost like we're the ultimate suspense band from album to album. It's like, oh, what are they going to yeah. do next? And yeah. so now you go from this sort of old timey psychedelia uh, and kind of wackiness of Alex and Maxoa to now this very earthy, uh, very organic, uh, acoustic uh, album that is uh, definitely very steeped in uh, country music in uh, folk music, uh, Garcia had discovered the wonders and beauty of the steel guitar and right. employs that quite a bit on this record, especially and most notably on the song Dire Wolf, yeah. uh, where, it, where it stands out. Uh, and it's kind of amazing what can happen when these guys get away from the hazy parties of the city and head out there into the quieter, more focused country. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, yeah. and going out to the country. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, here's a quote from Jerry Garcia that I pulled off the net uh, that I think is pretty telling and kind of sets up uh, this segue into Working Man's Dead. Uh, quote, you have to be ready and you also have to discard notions that are fondly held by a lot of musicians about sequences and notes and about scales and musical systems as a whole. If you think of music as a language, the space part is where you throw out all the syntax. Mm, interesting yeah. which is you know that, that's that's yeah pretty pretty funky and so the idea is don't be afraid to tear it all down and build it back up right and they definitely do that uh on this album which is simply one of the greatest records ever made uh choice tracks for all you spotify youngsters out there has there ever been a more perfect campfire sing-along song than uncle john's band one of the single greatest songs in the band's entire catalog. It's just yeah. an acoustic campfire song, folk beauty. Um, you have Robert Hunter's collection of Wild West weirdo characters 
bring memorable charm to the jaunty country shuffle of the song you mentioned, Chris, Dire Wolf. Uh, one of Bob Dylan's favorite dead songs, by the way, mm -hmm. supposedly. And Dire Wolf, whose jaunty country shuffle belies a, a sense of fear and dread where the narrator pleads in the chorus, I beg you, if you don't murder me, please don't murder me. And of course, the album is one of the most anthemic songs in the entire, in the Dead's entire discography. The rambling, ramshackle Casey Jones. Right in that train. Yeah. High on cocaine. Yeah, where cocaine use is explicitly mentioned in the chorus. Hey oh! Yeah, 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 exactly. So, yeah, so we know what kind of trip they were on. Uh, worth mentioning, as you said, uh, calling it one of the greatest albums of all time. In the latest uh, version of the Rolling Stones uh, 500 Greatest uh, Albums of All Time poll slash chart uh, from, again, 2020, uh, this one came in at number 409. Uh, in earlier editions, by the way, Anthem of the Dead was in that 500. That has since fallen out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And can we just pause here for a second, by the way? The, not, yeah. not really a segue. Uh, everybody likes to talk about, just in terms of mainstream uh, rock press, likes to talk about how 1971 was so great. Yeah. 1970. Yeah, that, I think that was even better. That was an extraordinary year. When you think about the stuff oh that God. Neil Young was doing, Simon and Garfunkel, the original uh, slate of uh, Beatles solo records, that, that came out of the gate. Uh, first two, first, first two black Sabbath albums. Yeah. Paranoid, uh, deep purple and rock, uh, funkadelic, uh, and just, uh, and so on and so on and so on. It is a really, just a truly great year, uh, for, uh, for rock and roll and, uh, just a lot of bands uh, at the height of their powers, including the dead. And you mentioned that in the last Rolling Stone uh, 500 Greatest Albums list, uh, Working Man's Dead slipped down to 400-something. However, the next album went up yeah. to like the, the high 200s in yeah. the last list. So I guess this next album, my personal favorite of all the Grateful Dead albums, is the one that uh, I guess younger journalists and musicians really turn to. And I'm glad to hear of it. That is American Beauty from 1970 their final album on warner brothers and the final album their final album of this streak of brilliant records that we're talking about so soon after working man's dead was released the band went right back into the studio to record american beauty while mining the same american roots music of blues country and folk this album is way more than just working man's dead part two if anything it's a sonic expansion of the palette introduced on that previous album. This expansion is most evident in two areas. The first of which is a preponderance of major key folk melodies. The triad that opens the album, Box of Rain, Friend of the Devil, and Sugar Magnolia, is awash in bracing, hummable melodies and sunshine bright production and clarity that must have been startling for fans accustomed to the soupy murk of Anthem for the Sun. It's as if they were consciously trying to give Simon and Garfunkel a run for their money. Um, the other major difference from the previous album is how the band ratcheted up their vocal harmonizing to another level. Nearly every track on this album features the three singing members of the dead, Garcia, Weir, Lesh, in perfect vocal form with their voices always high in the mix. You can tell the influence of Crosby, Stills, and Nash 
had seeped in at this point. Mm -hmm. In fact, David Crosby himself eventually used several members of the dead for the recording of his own solo album later in the year. Overall, though, American Beauty proved to be the purest example of the full flowering of the Grateful Dead's artistry as the Garcia Hunter songwriting team continued to deliver not only some of the greatest songs in the band's discography, but some of the best songs in the entire canon of the rock genre. And it wasn't just Garcia Hunter. Robert Hunter wrote the lyrics to Phil Lesh's elegiac album opener, Box of Rain, which was inspired by the recent passing of Lesh's father. Hunter also provided the words to Bob Weir's Sugar Magnolia, an acid-dried beauty of lush, hippie love sentiment that can even put the most stone-hearted curmudgeon in a hippie dance reverie. Uh, combined with Working Man's Dead, American Beauty was everywhere on FM rock radio in the summer and fall of 1970. And this duo of masterpieces set the stage not only for the Dead's incessant, endless touring during the next three years, but also opened the floodgates for the phenomenon known as Deadhead Culture fandom yes. that would make the band one of the most enduringly popular American bands of the next 20 plus years. Yeah, uh, so you met, you hit on a few of the points that I was going to bring up. Uh, one in particular, uh, the fact that on that Rolling Stone 500 Greatest Albums of All Time poll in 2020, this album went up to number 215. One of the few white guy records of its era that yeah. has uh, that has kind of stood up and moved up as you know the the demographic of the voters the voting uh, block has gotten gotten younger and more diverse how yeah. you know, american beauty is still you know moving up in in its reverence uh, among uh, these uh, younger uh, generations it this is not my favorite dead record uh we'll talk about that on that one in particular on part 2 uh however i I don't think that you can make much of an argument that this isn't their best. This is their best record. Uh, mm. And I think just objectively a uh, beautiful record, uh, really varied. Uh, the, the, the playing all around is brilliant. Um, the uh, arrangements are there, the singing, especially I said, you know, the singing, uh, they definitely were uh, inspired by, uh, by Crosby, Stills and Nash. And so there's, there's, there's two things that uh, make me love uh, this record. I am a huge fan of Addicts of My Life, mm. which is the uh, penultimate song uh, on the record. Uh, this is one of uh, Garcia and Hunter's true uh, masterpieces you know, with this lyric about finding love within the haze of dreams. Uh, just mm. this really gentle, uh, gorgeous guitar uh, playing from... Uh, Garcia, those harmonies, this kind of stretch, slow, almost, you know, not even elegiac, but it's, it's, it's a, it's almost like a, um, like a hippie gospel tune, you know, yeah. has that kind of vibe uh, to it. Uh, Phil Lesh's bass playing, uh, incredibly underrated bass player, uh, probably because as you said, he was not, you know, he only picked up bass to join the band. Basically they said, Hey, you yeah. want to be in our band? Okay. Learn bass. Okay. Uh, and so he doesn't play a b bass like a bassist. I mean, there's no pocket with Phil Lesh. It's a, it's an expressive art uh, instrument of its own. And so if you listen to it, really subtle, 
and just beautiful work that that, that lifts uh, that song up. And then also, I think this is the one record where you can say that when you think about the dead, you think about the music, you think about Gar- Garcia's guitar playing, you know, you think about some of the innovation, you think of some of the, you know, the stylistic shifts. Yeah, Robert Hunter is there, but he's not necessarily primary. He is here. Uh, yeah, this is uh, his his lyrics on this album are incredible. Uh, from the poignancy of Box of Brain to uh, you know the rollicking fun of Truckin'. I mean, Truckin'. Yeah, this is you know this is not just the album that has Truckin' on it, but yeah, it does have Truckin' on it. Uh, the yeah. lyric. Yeah, truck, 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 truck and buy for all you younger listeners was the biggest radio hit off this record. Uh, like uh, it's a rumbling blues rock monster that became one of the band's best and most reliable platforms for improvisational jamming in their live shows. Oh yeah, and it's it's one of the great you know. Uh, there's a long and illustrious history in rock and roll of the travelogue song. You know, yeah. we, you know we're we're stuck on the road and. Uh, Either we're having fun or uh, we're not. I mean, think of like Grand Funk Railroads. We're an American band. Uh, that's one of the fun ones. Turn the page, Bob Seger. Yeah. But, but this one is just really just kind of it's fun, but it also you know, has its it, you know kind of it has its barbs. You know the the thing about sweet sweet Jane living on a diet of Reds, vitamin C, and cocaine. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it always makes me uh, crack up. I also love the description of uh, New York be in the city that's got its ways and means yeah. <laughs> you and I haven't lived there for a long time. Yeah. We, it certainly did have its, uh, its ways, uh, its ways and means. So we haven't talked much about Hunter. And I think at the end of this episode, this is a good segue into it because I think Hunter's uh, stuff, I think got stranger and more literate uh, as it went along. Hunter's background is this. He, uh, he grew up in the Bay. Uh, him and uh, Garcia were buddies uh, they met each other. Evidently, uh, Garcia was dating a girl that uh, had dumped Hunter. And so hmm. they didn't necessarily see eye to eye at first, but they ended up uh, being in a, a band uh, together for a little bit. Uh, Hunter, he has the distinction of really interesting tidbit here. In 1962, Stanford University as fund through the great graces and generosity of the central intelligence agency, <laughs> uh, agreed to sponsor, uh, trials and experiments with, uh, LSD, which uh, they were, the CIA was exploring as a possible mind control drug that they could weaponize. And so Hunter, uh, who I believe was attending Stanford briefly, uh, was, able to participate in these, uh, in these experiments. And, uh, need, needless to say, maybe that's one of these things that, uh, helped shape the future and the color uh, of the dead. Uh, here's a great quote from, a the obituary for Hunter. Hunter died in 2019. So in the, uh, the New York times obituary, they quote, um, a guy who had, uh, written a book about the CIA experiments, Stephen Kisner. And so, uh, Kisner's quoted as saying, uh, he, Hunter, was given LSD, uh, psilocybin, and mescaline. Uh, and uh, then it says, afterward, he wrote an ecstatic six-page account of his experiences. Sit back, picture yourself swooping up a shell of purple with foam crests of crystal drops, soft nigh. They fall unto the sea of morning creep, very softly mist. Sounds like Grateful Dead lyrics. 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then continuing on, uh, quote, years later, added Mr. Kidner, Kisner, Kinzer, a former correspondent for the New York Times, he recognized the irony of the CIA, the CIA project, which was aimed at finding a mind control drug. Uh, the United States government was in a way, in a way, the United States government was responsible for creating the acid test and the Grateful Dead and thereby the whole psychedelic counterculture. Uh, and God so, bless America. Yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> so, so, so Uncle Sam, uh, you know, it, 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 it's given us many fine products of the military industrial complex, one of which may actually be the Grateful Dead. Uh, so, yeah, I said, but, but Hunter is just, he's just a very literate guy. He's, he's fun and he's funny, but he can be really profound, uh, as in, you know, some of the songs that we've mentioned here, uh, ripple was a great song uh, from this. Uh, he told Rolling Stone at one point that his favorite lyric on any of his dead songs was from uh, ripple. Uh, let it be known. There is a fountain that was not made by the hands of men. Hmm. You know, yeah. which, uh, you know, Ripple's a great song. I mean, that's just sort of, uh, right. you know, a uh, great use of mandolin on there. But anyway, uh, this is Hunter's uh, finest moments and uh, where he proved that now he wasn't just uh, Garcia's lyricist and wasn't just the guy that like put the words to the music. He actually was a, 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 a full fledged, uh, very important member, really, of this band. Sure. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, Gar Garcia, uh, sorry, Hunt Robert Hunter was pretty much there all throughout, even toward the very end of the band, always in the background, always there um, giving words, mostly to Garcia, but to other members of the band. But it yeah. all really started uh, in this era of the Grateful Dead, which brings us, Chris, to the very end of this first part of our special episodes or episodes, the Grateful Dead in the studio, a legacy. Our next episode will be part two in which basically we will explore the Grateful Dead's studio output of the 1970s, starting with their first album on their own Grateful Dead records label. They had their own independent label back in the 70s. This is before the whole punk rock, indie rock thing started. The Dead had their own label, and that album came out in 1973. And we're going to go from there onward up until 1980. And the wonderful, wonderful studio work they did uh, during this time. Yeah, they definitely, uh, at this point, they had figured out how to capture some of that um, magic that they created on the stage. Yeah. And to be able to translate it through the studio and... You know, this, as we said at the top here, that skiffle spirit of never, uh, sure. you know, they never stop mixing and matching and trying new things. And so they segue, right. you know, when, as we'll get into, they segue into, hey, reggae and hey, Middle Eastern music and hey, sure. uh, you know, like more sort of uh, almost cinematic kind of stuff. It's a very fascinating uh, ride through. And uh, isn't it uh, a kicker that a band that almost uh, bankrupted itself? from uh, indulgences of the studio within three years was afforded the opportunity to uh, have their own imprint. Yes, I know. The Dead, I mean, for his, they started out as counterculture. They became very much embedded in the culture by the time they were done. Oh, absolutely. And so with that said, folks, uh, if you disagree with anything we've said or have any thoughts about what we've said, uh, curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Uh, as you've heard at the very beginning of the show, uh, please uh, feel free to join our curmudgeonly community on Facebook. 
at facebook.com uh, slash curmudgeonly. And as I said here, uh, in what, in the days after we drop uh, this here episode, we will be creating a Spotify playlist that you can access so you can hear all five of the records uh, that we talked about in running order uh, back to back to back to back to back. So after the Grateful Dead evolved from heroes of the psychedelic underground to makers of generation-defining songs and albums, what's next? Most of you know that by the end of the 1970s, the band had created the most incredible and most deservedly famous touring phenomenon known to man. Yet, as we will discuss in part two of this series, just because they were made in that cult shade did not mean they shut off to create a faucet while riding that train that was dead ink. They had some really great albums left in them, and we will tell you all about those records when next we meet on the Curmudgeon Rock Report.